So we have a bradycardic, hypotensive, and symptomatic patient. Per ACLS, we should treat her with atropine, right? Wrong. Because there's more to this story. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Today, we're talking about a condition that I have seen several times in my career, but only recently did I have the verbiage and context to understand the pathophysiology behind it. Today, we're talking about brash syndrome. And if you're like, I have never heard of that either, Sarah. Well, you have probably seen it before, but like me, didn't know it had a special name to describe this cluster of clinical findings. So before I break it all down, let's dive into a case. So respond to rep response for bradycardia. Upon arrival, the patient, we'll call her Mrs. B, was lethargic and minimally responsive, and her radio pulse was thready and slow. I quickly put on the monitor, and her blood pressure was 80 over 40, heart rate of 35. The primary nurse reported that the patient was admitted for nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea yesterday, and she's been bradycardic in the 50s with a soft blood pressure in the 90s. She arrived from the ER to her floor around midnight, and it's currently 7 a.m. So this is a classic change of shift rapid response. Like, just a real quick plug for bedside shift report, because when the night shift was handing off to day shift, she woke the patient up to tell her that she was going home and to introduce the day shift nurse to her. But when they struggled to awaken the patient, that's what clued them in that something was off, and they called a rapid response. So do that bedside shift report. It really does save lives. Okay, so we have a bradycardic, hypotensive, and symptomatic patient. Per ACLS, we should treat her with atropine, right? Wrong, because there's more to this story. So I always start with fluids for hypotension, especially given her history of vomiting and diarrhea, it made sense. So as I'm giving the fluid bolus and getting the pressure bag set up, the nurse is telling me that she's been drowsy, but not this bad. I asked about her urine output, and turns out she hasn't peed since she's come up from the ER, at midnight, and there was no documentation of any void in the ER either. Okay, so now I have a bradycardic, hypotensive, symptomatic patient with no urine output for 12 plus hours. Okay, so while fluids are running in, I pull the MAR to see what meds she's gotten because maybe she received something recently that would make her drowsy or bradycardic. Well, she hasn't received much since admission except for IV fluids and some Zofran in the ER. But all of her home meds are ordered for this morning, and it looks like she takes both diltiazem for rate control for her atrial fibrillation, and she was recently prescribed carvitolol for better blood pressure control for her chronic hypertension. So hold up. 
Now I have a bradycardic patient with poor renal function on AV nodal blockers who's looking a little shocky. Now this is sounding more and more like BRASH syndrome. So let me see what her potassium is. Sure enough, her labs were recently drawn and just resulted with a potassium of 6.2. Bam. Hyperkalemia with bradycardia out of proportion to the level of hyperkalemia. This is classic BRASH. Now, let's get to treating this thing and not with atropine. So let's start from the top. What the heck is BRASH syndrome? BRASH is an acronym that stands for bradycardia, renal failure, atrioventricular block, shock, and hyperkalemia. So patients with BRASH syndrome may present with a diverse array of symptoms, reflecting the involvement of multiple organ systems. So bradycardia is the hallmark feature, often accompanied by symptoms like dizziness or syncope weakness. Renal failure manifests with decreased urine output, fluid retention, and electrolyte imbalances, particularly hyperkalemia. Atrioventricular block can lead to cardiac conduction abnormalities, potentiating and precipitating life-threatening arrhythmias. <laughs> Shock may ensue due to impaired cardiac output and decreased tissue perfusion, resulting in hypotension, altermental status, and organ dysfunction. Okay, so the takeaway is, like the most important thing I want you to get from this whole episode is BRASH is different than just regular bradycardia by itself or AV nodal blocker toxicity by itself or hyperkalemia by itself. BRASH is different because hyperkalemia and AV nodal blockers work synergistically together to make much more severe symptoms than either one of them by themselves. So with BRASH, you might have a patient with therapeutic levels of the AV nodal blockers, but mix that with the hyperkalemia and the renal failure and you have a real bad bradycardia. Hyperkalemia by itself usually has to be really high, like greater than seven or seven and a half before you start having bradycardia from it. But with BRASH, you could have those severe hyperkalemia symptoms like the widening QRS and the bradycardia with only a mild to moderate level of elevated potassium. And this is why it's so valuable to recognize this as a syndrome, the collection of symptoms. And this is why it's so valuable to recognize this as a syndrome, the collection of symptoms. Like this is why we have collections of symptoms like Cushing's triad to help us recognize the combo as a sign of increasing ICP or Beck's triad to recognize some patients might be developing cardiac tamponade. Any one of the symptoms of BRASH by themselves is worth noting, but together they make up BRASH syndrome, which was a term coined by Dr. Josh Farkas. So I want to give him credit. I have learned so much from his internet book of critical care. Rather than calling it the Farkas syndrome, like how most scientists name things after themselves, he came up with this clever acronym that actually describes the clinical findings of the syndrome. So B for bradycardia, R for renal failure, A for AV nodal blockers, S for shock, and H for hyperkalemia. So thanks, Dr. Farkas. I'll put a link in the show notes to his website if you want to check it out. It's really good. So what caused Mrs. B to go into BRASH? Well, and I'm just speculating, but she probably had some underlying renal insufficiency. Then she got that GI bug that led to vomiting and diarrhea and dehydration, which worsened her kidney's ability to function. Her blood pressure dropped, worsening renal perfusion, and this led to even more decreased renal function and inability to clear the potassium and the AV nodal blockers on board. So what did we get? We got 
the synergistic effects of hyperkalemia with AB nodal blockers, which gave her the profound bradycardia in the 30s and her shocky blood pressure to go along with it. Now, let's break down each of these pieces of the cascade into a little bit more detail. All right, so all BRASH patients are on some sort of AB nodal blocker. Calcium channel blockers like verapamil or deltaizem or beta blockers like atoprolol or carvedilol. Yes, an overdose of any of these can lead to bradycardia. But the key differentiator from pure AV blocker toxicity and BRASH patients with AV blockers on board is that BRASH patients have not consumed a large amount of their medications. They are taking them as prescribed. Remember, bradycardia is out of proportion to the amount of drug taken. Same goes for hyperkalemia. It doesn't have to be super high to cause the out-of-proportion bradycardia seen in BRASH. So then there's renal failure. Hey guys, I'll get back to the episode in just a second, but I wanted to pause to let you know that if you love my podcast but wish there were more of these awesome episodes, well, I have great news for you. There is more. My Rapid Response Academy is basically podcast 2.0, plus the huge added bonus of community. I love hosting this podcast, but it's just me recording into a microphone often by myself. And this extroverted gal who loves to both teach and mentor nurses just wanted more. So in the community I created, I get to teach live every Friday and break down topics that I think every nurse needs to know. From deep dives into the pathophys of every emergency you can think of, to some of the heart of nursing topics as well, like how to advocate with confidence for your patient, how to de-escalate situations, how to deal with bullies on the unit, how to be an amazing preceptor and charge nurse, and some of the mindsets and boundaries that have helped me stay in nursing for the last 20 years, not burn out, and thrive at the bedside. I love the opportunity to answer your questions live, and it's such a joy to see nurses supporting each other in this community. So if you're an acute care nurse that wants to expedite your growth as a nurse and invest in yourself so that you can provide the best care to your patients, you would love my Rapid Response Academy. So to learn more, I put a link in the show notes for you. Hope to see you there. The kidney's inability to filter is just the icing on the cake for this one. It just adds to the cascade of terrible complications. So anything that could cause pre-renal failure like hypotension from dehydration or sepsis or intrinsic renal failure that might be chronic or acute from like nephrotoxic medications or cell lysis like rhabdomyolysis or tumor lysis syndrome. And also, and probably less common, a post-renal source like renal stones or prostatic obstruction. So no matter the source, something caused these kidneys to be upset and it needs to be addressed for this patient to stop the shocky spiral. Okay, so I've covered B for bradycardia, R for renal failure, A for avional blockers, and H for hyperkalemia. The final is S for shock. So if we don't appropriately manage each piece of this terrible collection of clinical findings, the shock will continue to progress, leading to multi-system organ failure. Quick side note. Often when a patient is unstable or crashing, I I tend to want to diagnose it and just get to treating it. But I have to remind myself that patients can have multiple diagnoses happening simultaneously. It's easy to get excited when you think you can put your finger on something and stop it. But if we did that with brash, we would be doing the patient a disservice as we need to recognize and treat each piece of the syndrome in order for the patient to recover. That is why I said in the beginning that 
ACLS has kind of oversimplified treatments in the algorithm. Like, yes, unstable bradycardia can often be treated with atropine, but not every time. So just blindly following an algorithm and not taking into consideration this specific patient with their history and unique set of symptoms might lead you down the wrong path. Like, what's atropine going to do? First off, it might not even work since the source is nodal blockers and hyperkalemia working together to gang up on the cardiac conduction system. But even if it does increase the heart rate, it's just going to be a temporary bandage that won't last for long. So how about we treat the source instead? So let's start with hyperkalemia. You've probably heard of the hyperkalemia cocktail. The cocktail that includes insulin to temporarily shift the potassium from the bloodstream back into the cell and dextrose to counteract the hypoglycemic effects of insulin. Maybe some IV fluids, maybe some bicarbonate, maybe some albuterol for its beta-2 properties. But most importantly, and the first priority is to give IV calcium. Calcium. But why is calcium first? Because calcium doesn't actually lower potassium. We give calcium to prevent the scary arrhythmias that hyperkalemia can cause. Calcium stabilizes the cardiac membrane. Hyperkalemia increases the resting membrane potential of the cardiac myocytes, and that's not good because then the sodium channels don't all open up and this slows the impulse conduction. While calcium decreases the resting membrane potential, which increases the activity of the sodium channels. And that's how it, quote, stabilizes the cardiac membrane. It brings balance to the mix of ions so they can carry out each phase of the cardiac action potential cycle. So in summary, calcium counteracts potassium's depolarizing effects to stabilize the cardiac membrane and prevent dysrhythmias. So calcium is the first because that's the whole reason you're giving this cocktail is to prevent arrhythmias. There is so much more to discuss regarding hyperkalemia and its treatment. I actually did a two-part series on it last year. If you want more nerdy patho breakdown on hyperkalemia and how to treat it, you can check out episodes 46 and 47. Okay, so the first thing I did for Mrs. B, once I put the pieces together, this was brash, was give her some calcium. The other medication I started was epinephrine. Not a ton, just a low-dose infusion, and I titrated to get her heart rate and blood pressure up enough to better perfuse her vital organs. We went for a MAP of greater than 65. You can also use isoproteranol, but that drug, at least at my hospital, is much harder to come by. But I can mix up an EpiDrip from any crash cart in a jiffy. So next we have to consider their volume status. Do they need more volume? Like if we gave the kidneys a little more juice flowing through them, would they perk up and get back to work? Or are they just down for the count and we need to dialyze? Well, if the patient is still making urine, you can try the more volume approach. And this is where the debates begin. Which IV fluid do you go with? (laughs) Would you believe that it's not saline? I know, right? How much do I talk about this in the podcast? So LR or plasma light are ideal as they won't raise the chloride level. Dude, when I posted this on TikTok back when I released episode 47 on hyperkalemia, people were coming at me trying to tell me that LR has potassium in it. So it's contraindicated for hyperkalemia patients. But there's so little potassium in LR. It's four milliequivalents per liter. Y'all, four milliequivalents of potassium is nothing. I mean, a banana has 12 milliequivalents of potassium. So your liter of LR has as much potassium as like three bites of banana. 
Anyways, the potential acidosis caused from the saline is far worse than the four milliequivalents of potassium on your patient's hyperthalemia. Another option, if your patient's a bit acidotic, is to administer an isotonic bicarb drip. So that is 150 milliequivalents, or three amps of the brown box, mixed in one liter of D5. All right, so fluids, if they can tolerate them, and you can even pair your fluids with diuretics for a caloresis effect. You know how we're always checking the potassium before ever administering Lasix because Lasix lowers potassium? Well, now that's just what you want to happen. We want that potassium lowering effect. All right, so what if the patient's oliguric or getting fluid overloaded? I don't want to dump a bunch of fluids in until I have a way to pull it off. So in some cases, these patients do need dialysis. For Mrs. B, well, she required the big guns. She got the hyperkalemia cocktail. She got an epi drip for her heart rate and blood pressure. She got that first liter of fluids that I started back when her blood pressure was just low. And we're like, what's going on with her? But she got no more after that because she ultimately had to be dialyzed. So let me summarize the treatment priorities for BRASH. First, optimize their volume status, meaning either give them more fluids to perk up the kidneys or pull some fluids off by doing the work of the kidneys with dialysis. Next is treat the bradycardia with epinephrine. Worst case scenario, you could do transcutaneous or transvenous pacing, but really epi should do the trick and you shouldn't have to get to that point. Next is treat the hyperkalemia with the cocktail and either caloresis or dialysis to pull the potassium out. And finally, treat the source. You need to identify what got them here in the first place. What started the spiral? Treat the infection, stop that nephrotoxic drug, manage the injury, treat the thing. All right, so I think I covered it. You know, I have cared for so many patients with BRASH syndrome over the years, but didn't initially recognize it as a syndrome that needed each individual aspect dressed. Looking back, I can think of cases where we just treated the bradycardia and went down the bradycardia ACLS algorithm rather than targeting specific treatments for BRASH. But the one thing I've had to tell myself many times, and I tell it to other nurses all the time, is this great quote from Maya Angelou. She said, when we know better, we do better. And I just have to be okay with the fact that I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was diligently doing what I believed was the best for the patient with the knowledge that I had at the moment. And guys, that's actually what drives me to keep making this podcast. I hope that my stories and experiences will help you make the best treatment decisions for your patients. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. 
Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN. 